And it's, it's funny in these investigations, how things start to unravel and you start to find new people, new things. Um, again, this, this gentleman was into a whole lot of things. I think, uh, you know, on the surface, you could see him as one person. In fact, he was another. Warning. The podcast you're about to listen to may contain graphic descriptions of violent assaults, murder, and adult language. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Murder Police Podcast. The Murder of Aubrey Knuckles, Part 2 of 4. Well, on top of those things, then you have to interject his past. Yeah, there we and go. This is a yeah. guy who'd been the federal pen for trafficking narcotics. Is he still involved? Who's he involved with? Where are the people he did it before? He's moving. We learned very quickly he was in and out of the state often. He had so, just he had just taken a job yeah. or applied for a job that had yeah. to do with transporting vehicles from driving vehicles, his transport from Cincinnati to Texas and returning with other vehicles. So I, I don't know if this was a dealership or, or whatnot, but he had just applied for that job. And and if you're looking at somebody that's been, you know, slinging a little dope on the side, well, shoot, car transports as a job between locally and, and border states is a, is a great pest place to kind of go, hark, what ho, that does seem a little suspicious. Wow, guys, it sounds really interesting. Well, why don't you tell me and our listeners how the case transpired from there? It went out as a a possible kidnapping. So where do you take it from there? If you all were in homicide, how did you get involved with the kidnapping? At that time, the homicide unit hadn't been separated into it was kind of a total personal crimes unit. So we had sex crimes, serious assaults, homicides, kidnappings fell under that. Later, uh, as the police department expanded a little bit, of course, we homicide and went off to itself. Serious assaults went to a unit by themselves and sex crimes went to a whole unit by itself. At that time, we, at that time, we, we, uh, handled them all. So, we got it because it was assigned to us. So who gets the call first? Which of the two of you? It's been I think time. I was up. I think it was yeah. me as I was up as the next the next one up for the next case. So did you get a copy of the report or did is this didn't get a copy of the report for the next I think day? It, we had talked to Scott Blakely at that point, who was the original reporting officer. If I'm not mistaken, he may have came to headquarters because this was so unusual. Different. In unusual. Oh, I think he you're right. came and started telling us a little bit about it. And I think he'd actually collected the initial evidence with the, the letter that was stuck in the door. I believe you're correct. And uh, probably when he came down to book it and take care of it, then he took the time to come up and talk to us in person. I and think that's and, Scott Blakely. Yeah. He, yeah, retired, he reti- retired as a lieutenant. Exactly. For, good yes. guy. Good guy. Yes. Yeah. Very good guy. So where did you all start? 
on this? Did you, uh, you know, kind of take our listeners through when, when Scott came to see you, what was your first step? Well, typically we would start out, first off, you look at your victimology, as we, we talked about earlier. We started looking at um, what information we could find on the victim. And, uh, you know, and that, that's just basic things, so to speak. We got a lot of that information through his wife. Um, somebody would go and check the records, whatever we had as far as, you know, his, his past that we could find as far as arrest records and things like that. Um, and, and then I, I think in that case, we actually did do a neighborhood canvas at some point, uh, just because we were trying to figure out who may have left the letter in the door. So, um, we had several good things to start with in terms of just, just building a base, but probably, um, the most solid information we got, as it turned out, was from his wife. And even though, you know, at first we really couldn't gauge exactly how good the information was, was this things that she actually knew or was imagining or, you know, that sort of thing. She was a, a bit of a fragile lady, I guess you could describe her, um, somewhat soft-spoken uh, a little bit. Obviously, she was upset, and that probably added to her demeanor and everything. So we really didn't know how to take her. But, you know, as far as the basics go, we knew the car was missing. So we started trying to find out some some information about the vehicle and that sort of thing. So the other thing that, that jumped out at us was she made the comment that she had a self-storage unit that she kept all the her father's property. She had a key to it, and uh, the victim had a key to it, and those were the only two keys that, that – uh, Work to that storage unit. We thought that was curious and decided to do a little follow up on that. Got permission from her uh, as the owner of the unit for a search, got her key, went to that location because we were a little curious about his past to see if it would give us any insight into what he had been up to. Uh, we actually contacted the narcotics unit because of his previous. Uh, drug conviction they executed uh on our half behalf a search uh, that was consensual from the victim's wife to that storage unit and we found 12 pounds of packaged marijuana there high grade yeah it was it was good doobie and uh at that point we decided this may be you know we knew from her description that he was in business with a male Hispanic that she had seen him with, had known for several years, but she didn't really know his name and only knew him by sight. And then we have the marijuana connection. She kept trying to lead us back to this Hispanic individual that she thought was associated with the horse that he owned. And she made some statement that she saw this subject sitting in a car across from the house a couple of days after she received the ransom note. She thought that was curious and suspicious. It turned out it was no relation whatsoever to the case, but it got us focused on a Hispanic subject. When it turned out that was not the subject that she thought she had seen him doing business with, we tried to locate and center on that subject. We contacted the FBI because, number one, it's a kidnapping case, and the resources they have are so much quicker and faster than what we could come up with. We had suspects in West Virginia, South Carolina that we needed interviewed. The FBI was was very helpful. The two agents involved, Tommy Gayhart and John Whitehead, 
uh, local office, they were able to connect with those people, have agents doing interviews with those subjects. Uh, they were able to uh, access phone records. Their subpoenas were much quicker turnaround than ours were. So the resources they had, they have jurisdiction over over kidnapping investigations. We got them involved. They were very helpful. Their resources really pushed us to get a lot of information quicker than we would have had going through our resources and having fun. Real quick, because I want to keep on a, a timeline. When you went to her, what was the uh, evidence of a kidnapping? What? How did this uh, evolve? Scott Blakely? Luke, I think uh, it was, was actually the letter that was placed in her door, basically, you know, alluded alluded to, um, we've got him and, and you need to respond to this. And like Paul talked about earlier, uh, then that was the pager era. There were really, really weren't, there was cell phones around and so forth. But, um, and, and also we should point out, like I said, with her, she was a little bit unusual, but they did not have a home phone. Anytime she needed to use a home phone, she would have to walk from her residence Probably, I would say a couple of blocks. She'd either walk over. She went down to that shopping to the, center on Richmond Road yeah, to use the Home a Depot, or she yeah. would walk somewhere, you know, several minutes from her home to make calls. And I think from past dubious activities with her husband, they kind of knew what phones it could be called back and so forth. So there were specific places I think that she would go to. So you know, all this, like I said, when you when we talked to her. A lot of this stuff was was kind of bizarre to be D- different. With you. Certainly, very not. very different. Not not what your average. Yeah, I'm picking that up because back then again, the pager thing. There may be some young kids that are like, I don't know what that is, but but it, back then, you know, some people didn't have phone service and pay phones, which are antiques and museums now themselves. But like you said, the familiarity with that becoming your ad hoc phone that that's one more piece of that thing that makes it so weird about who what you're dealing with well and, and when you got to when we got to tracking the information from him trying to figure out what he'd been doing in the last few days and we were contacting these different people that we most of them we found either through talking to the wife and she knew their names or a few that we had a paper trail they had he had left notes or written them checks or those kind of things and and i think like Paul said a few minutes ago, too, the FBI was very helpful because very quickly, several of these leads ran out of state. We're talking about Texas, I think Texas, West Virginia, South Carolina, Ohio. Yeah. So, you know, very quickly as we started looking at what's what's before us to, you know, follow up on leads, we were going several different directions. And when you look at a local jurisdiction like us, we can reach out to other local jurisdictions, but it slows things way down where the FBI had those resources that their field office could contact the field office in another state and say, Hey, can you get on this and check it? So that really sped things up. And you had them like right there from day one. Yeah. yeah they one. were with us side by side. They were yeah. great, you know, a big asset for yeah. us. Well, there, had she told you that she was successful in reaching someone when calling that pager, or had she not? Oh, no, she, yeah, she told us she called the pager. And, of course, that reiterated the money aspect, the ransom. So she did receive a call back. Yeah, she went to a phone and made a call, called the pager, which was the victim's pager. And then she gets a call back and asks, you know, it's a male voice. She said there was no, you know, accent she could discern. 
and he was the one that re he i think his he told her that that he was had there been a drug deal gone south he was being held it would take twenty thousand for his release and Oh, you know, don't call the police. Oh, uh, yeah. Jeez, get anybody they, involved, and you'll find him tied to a mesquite bush. Yeah. That's what it was. A mesquite bush. Mesquite so what bush. do you think? Well, you know, we talk about Texas, you know. I ain't, I ain't seen many of them around here. Not around these necks of the woods. So did did he disclose where this mesquite bush was? No. So she didn't know at this point if he's... In Lexington or I, I in Texas? At this point, she was still not really believing that he'd actually been kidnapped. Yeah, she was about she halfway was concerned, can- but she was still a little, I think in her mind, probably a little up in the air of whether or not this was an effort on his part to get her to give up some cash so that he can get on it. Because we did also learn that he liked to gamble and he was a high stakes gambler. And I think a few times as, as the investigation went on, we learned that he had, in fact, gotten to a little trouble with gambling debt. And I think at one point, another witness that was talked to, he had actually left cash with that witness with instructions. And of course, uh, that witness didn't really know how much it was or anything like that. It was sealed in a package left with that witness. Uh, that witness was instructed that if he ever called that she need to get that package and have it shipped to wherever he said, which we found out later in the investigation that actually did happen. And that package uh, was intercepted, if I remember, by the local police. Yeah, somebody intercepted it. And I think the DEA got involved then trying to find out the, the uh, origin of that cash. And it was a substantial amount of money. So. You know, this this gentleman was was wrapped up into a whole lot of things, um, not only in and of a business nature, but also on the on the other side of the law. You know, he was quite active in that cash thing that that all happened sometime, I, I assume, well before the, the kidnapping. Yes. yes, that was before the kidnapping. And so when how long did it take to start? I know we've heard all these and every one of these is a risk factor. It, how much time, and it probably, I guess, day-to-day, you learned a new thing. Was that it? Or Day-to-day, we were chasing down, learning new things on the individuals you knew, the stuff he'd been doing the day of his disappearance, trying to figure out what kind of business locations he had been visiting. We ended up finding out he had a uh, post office box yes. over at the post office in Garden Springs. So we executed a search warrant on that post office box after the postal inspectors you know, kind of said, yeah, it's loaded. Uh Got the stuff out of that and, of course, gained a bunch of new contacts to contact and that type of stuff. The curious thing about that was we had no idea that a state warrant, and we should have known, was not sufficient for federal property. We got a state warrant executed. Post office didn't have any problem. We searched the the post office box and only found out later, talking to the federal prosecutor, that they actually, the state didn't have any jurisdiction over that property, so they couldn't issue the the search warrant that would have had to be a federal judge. Uh, none of the evidence was contested, but it was a first time, first time for everything. Kind of learned that went. Oh well, that's a little note to make for later. But, and it's it's funny in these investigations how things start to unravel, and you start to find new people, 
new things. Um, again, this, this gentleman was into a whole lot of things. I think, uh, you know, on the surface, you could see him as one person. In fact, he was another, he ended up having a, a girlfriend in, in Tennessee, which shed a whole lot of light onto a whole lot of things. And he, he had been with her for 10 years, I believe she had no idea he was married. And I guess wife didn't know about girlfriend. Wife either. didn't know about like Paul said, when we started out the relationship with his wife, unfortunately had turned into, I think it was more of a brother, sister convenience. We're older. Um, we've been at it this long. Let's just stick with it. I think the romance clearly had been gone, but then we found this other person and this person was oblivious again to the other side of his life, had no idea who and what he really was until investigators started talking to her and really poking. How did y'all find her? How did, how did it? Uh, There was a check. The check. Yeah. In a, in a vehicle. Was it in the vehicle? She Uh, had, I think it was in the house or in the vehicle when she had written him a check for cash. He was kind of using her for a little cash on the side. Yeah. And she had a little bit of money, I she, think. She she was fairly um, well off. But she is a very sweet, seemed like a very sweet lady, older lady, I think close to 70. Genuinely, I think at one point cared for him, but I think she even told us that after a while she realized that he was kind of a con man and she went from a romantic interest to just friends. And uh, she continued to be friends with him, I guess, up until his, his death. But, uh, it's a very interesting relationship. One, one thing that speaks to me, and again, the, the listeners will get this too, is that significance of every little thing. Because here you're talking about you go uh, uh, bang a post office box with a warrant and you're getting mail. And in those names become potential leads, right? Right. And then you find a check, right? And that sounds innocuous and very simple in and of itself and everything. But again, the name on that check, how that uh, – uh, James Carlos, I think somebody in an earlier episode said it's like taking a thread out of a sweater yeah. and it starts to pool. Well, and we've got to look too. we got to step back in time a little bit. This is 1998. Yeah. Technology has changed tremendously since then. I remember one of the headaches we always had with any homicide was phone records. Number one, the subpoena process, different carriers had different rules. Some of them would be uh, reactionary to a subpoena others would tell you not we're not doing that turn around time on getting it back yeah it could take it could some of them you could get within a few hours some of them you could get in a few weeks some of them you didn't get at all and with with this one one of those things that you ask about what did we find was phone records and very quickly those phone, I think that fairly quickly, anyways, we got those phone records, and I don't know who I assume Paul went through those phone records and started identifying who was attached to what numbers, and that really helped because that kind of gives you an idea of who he's currently dealing with, and you know, kind of kind of leads you in a direction of what that business is about, too, so to speak. We're getting ahead of ourselves, but it, it it speaks to what you talked about, the little things. The suspect, who it's probably about time to get into how we identified him or not, the suspect had taken the car, the victim's car, with the body in it, and hidden it in a rural area in another county. And he told the lady who owned the property that he was buying the car from a friend. The friend owed money on it, 
and the car was about to be repoed. So he needed a place to hide that car until after the repo had been, until, until the supposed buyer paid off the debt and it wasn't under threat of repossession. And so he asked her if he could stash the car at that location, and she hesitantly said yes. We find out that he shows up at that location, drops off the car, but he's got no way to get back to Lexington. This is a neighboring county, your county here in Jessamine County. And uh, how do I get home? So he calls. He has the people where he parked the car call a friend in Lexington that for money will give him a ride back. On the ride back, when we interview that guy, he says, oh, yeah, I saw that car parked over there. The guy I was giving a ride back to, the suspect made the comment that, well, that vehicle, I had to leave it down here because it has, uh, a, I got a problem with universal joint. Broken down. The guy that was giving him a ride thought, oh, well, I can make a little more money off this. Can we? Uh, I've got a friend that can help repair it. Can we take you someplace to get your uh, parts? But he remembered specifically he told him the car was there because it had a universal joint probably wouldn't run well he never talked to the landowner who told us oh he said he had to have it so you've got two contradictory stories that jump up immediately if you're paying attention and go hey somebody here stop telling the truth that's what keys you in on on one particular suspect and he told one lie to one and one lie to another and never knew that we'd connect the two and then if, if you look at it just on the surface of what paul's talking about Kind of bizarre that somebody would show up, if I remember right, I think it was a Sunday night, 9.30, 10 o'clock, and this guy needs a ride from the next county over. If that doesn't jump out at you, I mean, I don't know what does. Well, let's. Uh, we might have jumped, a, and it was a good point and everything, but it, we might have skipped a couple of things. To, we did. To get, we might have leapfrogged, so if we can fill in those gaps and everything without, but, but again, the devil's in the details, right? And if you're not paying attention, those little small ones, and they go right past you if you're not paying attention, for sure. So how do we get you? You get the call from Scott Blakely. You go out, you interview her. Uh, you get enough information. You you get some really cool stuff in the beginning, which would be the storage shed or the the storage facility, yeah, yeah. and uh, and pop that. And then where else do you go from there that uh, starts to work? This where's the chronology with this luck? No, it's always, yeah, for sure. Luck. We had the information we had. We had been to the storage unit and searched it, found the, the marijuana. Which turns it in a different direction immediately. Exactly. It we talked the to the um, manager of the storage unit, a very helpful, friendly individual. And then we go about following our other leads. I believe it was the it, first it was, of the week was, on a Monday or a Tuesday after he had been reported missing on a Thursday. We get a call from the storage guy, and he says, hey, I'm sitting around last night. The alarm goes off for the victim storage unit. If you don't punch in a key code, then we get an alarm. So he goes to the storage unit, and there's a guy in the unit. And he says, who are you? What are you doing here? And the guy says, well, I'm a friend of the victim, and I'm here to pick up a briefcase. And the storage owner goes, well, your briefcase is probably not there because the police were here yesterday, and they searched it and took stuff. 
And then the guy who manages the storage unit says, hey, how about you come up to the office and well, give the police a call? This is just kind of strange. He asked him who he was. Yes. And he gave him, and a, he gave fake him name. a fake name. Robert and Rivers. Rivers was the name. Yeah. And then uh, pretty quickly, once they get up to the office, the guy takes off running and runs over around behind a fence, jumps in a vehicle, takes off. Fortunately, the guy who ran the storage place was pretty savvy, managed to get a good look at the vehicle. And he was very knowledgeable of vehicles because he'd been a he, car salesman. He was one of these car guys. Yeah, he was a car guy. He so gave he, it to us within a year of the year yes. model. And then I think he may have even got the plate. He and, got, yeah, he got, and the, that's where I we, think he got all the plate, but one letter or yeah. number. And we ended up coming up with the suspect's name with the vehicle registered. So Which wasn't Rivers. It wasn't Rivers. Uh, no. So everything started really to fall into place. Ruben Rijos Salinas. Yes. Was, was the name. And when we started then focusing on him, one of the things we did was the wife had seen this guy. So when we could show her a picture, she was kind of like, oh, yeah, that's, that's the guy. That's him. That's the guy. So that was the key break. And it was blind luck, and it was based on his greed. He had to go back for the money in that storage. And the marijuana, possibly, right? Well, that's the money. Yeah. Oh, the, okay. Yeah, that's that's the value. That's the money. He had to get that. And and. Another, well, I'll get into this a little later. Another thing that I just wanted, uh, they don't make it easy for you, but their greed or their animus makes them overlook mistakes. The money, what he could get for that marijuana, he's pushing for this 20000 ransom. He can't just go, well, I've killed a guy, let's get away with it. You know, he's got to make that extra little push, and that was his mistake. And I think that was the point that we were up over the top of the hill. We, we'd reached the summit, and we're going down. Yeah, from there very on. Very quickly, we had a gentleman that con- – it was a guy that I knew that contacted us. I got to talking to him. He came down and gave an interview, and it was a guy I knew from the streets, I guess, best I remember. And he said – Hey, you know there's more to the story, so go download the next episode like the true crime fan that you are. The Murder Police Podcast is hosted by Wendy and David Lyons and was created to honor the lives of crime victims, so their names are never forgotten. It is produced, recorded, and edited by David Lyons. The Murder Police Podcast can be found on your favorite Apple or Android podcast platform, as well as at murderpolicepodcast.com, where you will find show notes, transcripts, information about our presenters, and a link to the official Murder Police Podcast merch store where you can purchase a huge variety of Murder Police Podcast swag. We are also on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, which is closed caption for those that are hearing impaired. Just search for the Murder Police Podcast and you will find us. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe for more and give us five stars and a written review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your podcasts. Make sure you set your player to automatically download new episodes so you get the new ones as soon as they drop. And please tell your friends. Lock it down, Judy.